Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. And today we have a very special guest on show with us, Miss Emily Kursky. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Emily is a clarinetist, music critic, and arts administrator. She currently lives in the Windy City, Chicago, where she is an active contributor to local music culture. And we'll be having an interesting conversation with Emily today about a variety of musical topics, so let's jump right in. So Emily, as a clarinetist, you fit into a lot of different genres ranging from classical orchestral music to even modern rock. Um, Do you feel that the clarinet is unique in its versatility? I do. I think the clarinet has that uniqueness to transcend genres, which is partly what draws me and inspires me to the instrument. As you said, it's equally at home in wind band, for example, orchestra, pop music, jazz band, rock bands. I think there's several reasons for that. I think it has to do with the range of the instrument. It has very low and high range, as you know, especially compared to the other woodwinds. So it's very flexible, can have a mellow sound, a bright sound, and this allows it to fit in a variety of contexts. So I do want to touch a bit on your playing of rock music. Please, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You were the member of a band at your church, right? Yes. Um, Did you feel that the clarinet did fit in in that setting or did you feel out of place at all? I think it can fit in any setting, partly because it can cover, as I mentioned, different ranges. So in that context, I'd play trumpet lines, for example, or I could cover violin parts. And it's very different playing with electrified instruments, I'd say, um, because obviously the clarinet is not. So in that way, it feels kind of uncomfortable. But a lot of times I've seen clarinet in popular music. It can be miked, for example. Wonderful. So we, as Asa and Allison, have (laughs) had the honor to perform alongside you. We've known you for many years, uh, both in quartets as well as large wind bands and orchestras. you currently play with various chamber groups and other large ensembles. So let's talk about um, how you approach each type of group and how you think the audience interprets that type of group. So specifically for an, for an audience member who might not go to a lot of concerts, is they would you recommend that they venture out with a, an introduction to a particular type of ensemble? I think that's a good question. And I would just encourage people to venture out to try something. Certainly each type of setting, each type of group, presents a unique experience with a unique sound. So audience members might find that they prefer kind of the surround sound of a large group versus the intimate setting of a small group. But I think there's certainly value in each. As a player, I really enjoy each. And I think people should maybe try some of both and see what they prefer. Do you feel like there's a particular ensemble that might be more accessible? Do you think, like, for example, do you think that a, uh, a chamber group might be a little bit easier for a newer listener to understand? I don't personally think so, but what okay. do you think, Asa? I think that's uh, a good question. <laughs> this is not my interview. See, <laughs> <laughs> so you flipped the tables on me. Um, I, I actually sort of agree with with you, perhaps, because there's some complexities that are present in chamber music that are sort of hidden by a large ensemble, 
where things become a more cohesive sound and it's harder to pick out some of the things that the composer might have wanted you to hear from a smaller ensemble. Hmm. I think there is perhaps if people are interested in really seeing kind of up close, you know, a new music listener, how it works or how the players interact, you can see more of that on a smaller scale in a chamber concert. So that could be interesting to people. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I would like to compare it, if you will, allow me, to magic shows. There's a thing called up-close magic, where Mm. you're in a very intimate setting, and it's a lot of, like, hard trick kind of things, as opposed to, like, when they saw the lady in half on stage, and that's, like, a far-away magic trick, I guess. So it's kind of like... There is a big, flashy thing that is the orchestra, and you get, like, a big picture, but then... For a chamber group, it's like you're up there seeing like the individual parts that go into each trick or piece, if you will. And I think it just kind of depends what a new listener would be interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good illustration. So similarly, do you feel like there might be a particular subgenre of classical music uh, that is more accessible for new listeners? Like, would you recommend a, a modern new a modern listener? attend you know a baroque concert or a romantic one or i also think that no i think people should discover open themselves up to a lot of different possibilities and i don't think there's one over the other that is more accessible per se because music is very subjective and everyone's experience is different i think as you talked about in other episodes in the romantic era like 1800s there was this divide between programmatic and absolute music And I think that still sort of exists. So people might find that they enjoy an experience which is more programmatic, for example, opera. Mm -hmm. So if you like to kind of watch a story unfold and the visual element of that, you know, that's certainly a great way to do that versus absolute where you're sitting and the art is mostly aural, right? You're listening and there's not necessarily an overt story going on. So I think, yeah, again, I really encourage people to see, try different things to see what they might like, but I wouldn't want to suggest one over the other. Uh, and I'd also say that there are less clear-cut genres in music that you might experience every day. For example, television or film soundtracks, or if you associate music with ballet or musical theater. So there's a, many different ways to experience it beyond the traditional concert hall as well. Mm. That's a very good point. Yeah, so so speaking of that, would... I mean, I've talked to people who might not have been affected by classical music until they've actually gone to a performance versus listening to things on the radio or on CDs. Do you find that that is sort of a, a, a common theme? You feel like a, a, a live performance is a better or more emotionally affecting way to introduce yourself? I think in that it focuses you on the music instead of it being background. In a way, I would say yes, then you're actually really thinking about how the music affects you instead of in like a soundtrack or something. Something Asa had mentioned in a previous episode about when you were listening to a concert recording versus Allison attending the live concert. Mm-hmm. That, that was a really interesting point about Asa had felt you could take in the surroundings a little bit more, whereas if you're in a live concert, that's immediately in front of you. So it'll be a little different experience. Mm-hmm. So one of your projects that you've been working on in Chicago is that you are the founding member of Modern Reads, which is a group that focuses on modern or particularly new music. So first off, what is new music and have you always liked it? I think it's increasingly challenging for me to answer that. What is new music? Because, <laughs> yeah, it's, there's, it's so nuanced. Especially as I've moved to Chicago, there's so many different movements. There's experimental music, there's performance art, 
um, I think originally I had kind of viewed it as music that's recently written. Um, but it, there's so many different definitions of that. Music since 1950, for example. Music since 1980. Um, and also modern music is a difficult term as well, because it's not necessarily modernist music. It's kind of elusive, I think. Uh, and, you know, scholars and music historians might have a more informed opinion. But I have always been fascinated with working alongside composers by working with living composers, as you and I did mm -hmm. in our groups, um, to produce something that hasn't been heard before, I think. I think it's remarkable that well, you have these classical pieces that have endured, but I think it's also important to keep producing new repertoire and experimenting with boundaries of sound. So on that point, do you think that that's something that is more possible or a more expansive field to do today with advances in communication? Because pieces were always written with a in collaboration with performers, um, right? But do you think that is something that is expanding, a field that's expanding today? I would agree. I think you're right because you can be in contact with composers from, you know, that you might not even meet in person. So cer certainly the that opens up possibilities, yeah. Wonderful. I think many audiences are kind of scared of new music. They might gravitate towards going to a concert that advertises it's playing Brahms and Beethoven rather than something that's playing a completely unheard of new composer. And they might argue that they're worried it will sound bad. Of course, as you mentioned, there are many different styles of new music and many different ways that it's being composed now. So do you have any advice for someone to encourage them to maybe try some new music? Right. I would encourage people to try listening to something written perhaps in the last decade. And it, you're like you're saying, you might be surprised that it, it might sound classical or romantic to you. For example, movie soundtracks are often written in like a neo-romantic style. I think, yeah, there's certainly a lot of stigma and especially dissonance and uncomfortable sounds, which certainly is still going on. But I think just encouraging people to have an open mind and to experiment with different categories movements in new music um you might find something that you didn't expect <laughs> so with that, with that said actually you, you touched on music, movie soundtracks a couple times one of the things that i've sort of found interesting is movie soundtracks are slowly seem to be slowly becoming more accepted as or standalone art pieces something right. that people seek out and, and yet we don't see a lot of composers dip their heels or dip their toes into like art music then, then also write for a movie score or for a game or something like that. Do you think that those different genres or different fields sort of feed off of each other and are creating sort of a more modern acceptance of that? That's an interesting question. And yeah, I guess movie soundtracks keep coming to mind because it's an arena in which many people who would say they're not classical music aficionados experience Western art music, if you will. And... Well, I think, for example, Benjamin Wallfish is an upcoming composer who's written movie soundtracks, but also writes for Orpheus Chamber Ensemble, and so he crosses the line. And I also kind of believe that film soundtracks can be considered art music in their own way, and I think there's, the line is more blurry. I would say that the Star Wars soundtracks, for example, are particular art. Quite. Yes, yes. <laughs> and also John Williams didn't just write for soundtracks. He also wrote right. things for other orchestras. Right. And orchestras in the concert hall, are, you know, will play pieces from soundtracks. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it's interesting. And classical standards are often used as soundtrack components. Right. Mm -hmm. So we will include a link to a selected YouTube video of a Benjamin Wallfish piece. And so you can check that out and maybe see if that's a type of new music that you might like. Indeed. You mentioned working with composers to commission works. Can you tell us kind of what that process is like 
and what is important about, well, you kind of already touched about what's important about commissioning pieces, but maybe elaborate on why it's so important that artists do that. Sure. So commissioning is basically the process of outlining a contract with a composer, and there may be specific guidelines for length of the piece, the style, the instrumentation. And I just think it's it's very interesting as a player to talk to a composer about what they envision for the piece and just to be really part of the organic process of it. Um, and mostly I just like that it results in something that's brand new. And despite kind of the parameters of music, there's always new sounds to be created. I was going to speak also about the commissioning of new repertoire is important, but the second performance of the repertoire is critical for longevity of the piece. So I think um, as it's very important, I think, for musicians to be commissioning, but to be able to somehow kind of identify or encourage works to be performed multiple times is really important for the composer and for the piece. I actually had an interesting conversation with one of my bosses about that kind of thing the other day. And they were talking about a new piece that had been commissioned by a consortium of orchestras in the Midwest. A consortium is basically a lot of musical groups getting together to make a commission. And he was mentioning that in that way, they automatically have like five or so different groups who are therefore going to play the piece. And so lots and lots of people are going to be hearing it and it's going to get that second and third, fourth, et cetera, performance already. Good point. Yeah, that's a great model, I think. So alongside of new music itself, here on the Coffee House, we've talked a couple times about new music technology. Uh, so we've talked about, for example, live versus YouTube or recorded performances. And recently you brought up the topic of Facebook live performances, which are remote streamings of live concerts. Uh, so what are your thoughts on reaching audiences through the Internet live, quote unquote, versus in person? To me, there are clear pros and cons that are similar to the pros and cons of a live versus recorded performance. So in my mind, positive things are increasing accessibility of performances um, and increasing recognitions for performers. But the cons are that I think the live experience is still singular and it's it's very memorable. It's very immediate. And there's sonic things happening when you're in the room. (laughs) Right. Um, But I think it is a, a positive thing that you're able to. For example, Facebook live stream things now um, just so that people can have that experience if they can't be there in person. I think accessibility is very important. There's definitely a a trend of students live streaming recitals so that they can reach larger audiences of friends and family and maybe some other professional contacts who might be interested in tuning in. So if someone wanted to start doing live streaming of their performances, what do you think are critical technologies for performers who are looking to kind of break into that method? I would refer to Asa on this question. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody who has done live, like run the tech side of the broadcasting before, um, good microphones are obviously important. Mm -hmm. Being able to get an authentic sound of the instruments and of the performance hall that you're in as well. I mean, a lot of that comes back to like live sound engineering, but I think it's also fairly critical that you have a good camera, um, a good camera or two, maybe some multiple camera angles that will allow you to get something out of the, you know, vi- visually out of the performance that you wouldn't otherwise. And I actually wanted to ask you, Emily, um, do you think that live audience members would appreciate a quote-unquote live audience members <laughs> uh, appreciate an experience that is as authentic to being in the concert hall as possible or would might they prefer to have their uh, 
experience augmented by some of the technologies that are available to them as a remote listener. I think that is a fascinating point about how having multiple camera angles, for example, um, it's a kind of creates a different live experience. And I think people that I've spoken to that have watched concerts live have appreciated the advantages of things like zooming in on the performers. And so that is interesting because you wouldn't necessarily have that in the concert hall. Um, but it does give you this feeling of closeness, I think, that you don't have when you're watching remotely. That is nice to have. We watched Slash participated in a concert a few years back by our professor, Dr. Wesley Ferreira of Colorado State University, uh, that was both streamed live and included a lot of audience interaction mm-hmm. elements where we could vote on pieces. And uh, there was a, a board where comments were being live uh, shown live to the rest of the in-person audience. Um, so what what opportunities do you think let's maybe spitball here as a group what what's there some sort of opportunities for extra audience interaction do you think that would augment that sort of concert going experience we did a concert recently in chicago where there was players in the hall surrounding players and i know they were filmed from those locations so hopefully if you were watching and not in the audience you would still get that feeling of where they were in the space for example Mm mm-hmm no, that's a, I mean that's a very that's a very good point. You could be with with one group performing as one from different locations and Right. I was just going to say we could make that even more extreme and have people who are in completely different locations, like not even in the same concert hall, but like different states. If you could somehow sync it up exactly properly, you could have <laughs> whole ensembles that just kind of Skype in almost and perform. I know these are recordings, but that's sort of the 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 concept of the virtual orchestra mm. project or virtual choirs mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Eric Whitaker. Yep. Right. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. So, is Facebook the only option that provides this sort of live, or do we know <laughs> of any other? It's certainly the most accessible right now. I would say the one that provides the easiest access to the largest audience. Because there are many other online platforms for live broadcasting. Uh, YouTube, Ustream, Twitch uh, is broad is branching out into other categories beyond game streaming. You could Snapchat the entire thing. You could, <laughs> although I don't know why you would. <laughs> Facebook uh, at least saves it afterwards. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and, it's, and it's certainly, you know, the one that is, is most accessible to professionals uh, who might be looking to discover. Although they do already have to be... Uh, connected with you in some way. With you or your page. Right. That's one of the benefits of a, a platform like Twitch or YouTube. If you are looking for a live performance or a stream of some sort, you can just type in what categories that you're interested in, and it will show you a litany of, of broadcasters that are delivering that content in real time. So even though Twitch is geared towards uh, geared towards video game streaming primarily, as is right now YouTube, uh, there are services which will allow you to split your broadcast into mul- off to multiple platforms at once. So if you're looking to reach the largest audience possible, something to consider. Mm-hmm. So now to change topics just a little, but of course still talking about music here. Um, for as long as I've known you, Emily, you've been giving clarinet lessons. So do you like teaching and why? I actually think it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. I think it's both extremely challenging and extremely rewarding and essentially I look at it as teaching a language helping students of any age gain the skills to sort of be be fluent in it it's 
it's an amazing thing. It's also a very challenging thing to teach something so finely skilled and so nuanced. So you mentioned any age. I know that you have been in college and I've seen you teach high school and lower, but have you ever had an adult learner that you've taught an instrument to? I've never had an adult student, but I would encourage adults who have thought about (laughs) taking up an instrument to do it. Absolutely. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) So Emily, do you yourself have any social media, upcoming concerts, etc. that you would like to use this prodigious platform to promote? Oh, well, I was asked to provide some listen, more listening suggestions. Um, so I just encourage people looking to branch out into listening to contemporary classical music or newer music to check out I Care If You Listen. Really interesting review website of contemporary classical music, icareifyoulisten.com. And we will also link that in our episode description. Indeed. Um, some really exciting in my opinion, new music ensembles you might like to check out. Sort of the foremost in the country at the moment would be Ensemble Dal Niente, based in Chicago, 8th Blackbird, multiple Grammy Award winning um, International Contemporary Ensemble, or ICE. And then, yes, I write for Cacophony Magazine, which is a new music and arts magazine based in Chicago, but it might offer pathways to new listening experiments wherever you are. Also gives you a glimpse into the very widely varied and experimental new music scene in Chicago, and that's at cacophonymag.com. Wonderful. And of course, you are the founding member of Modern Reads. Yes. Modern Reads you can find on Facebook. Yes. Thank you very much, Emily, for joining us here on The Coffee House. We will direct people to your website. If you like what we do on The Coffee House, please tell a friend as such. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play. Drop a review there as well. For The Coffee House Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. I'm Allison. And I'm Emily. Thank you so much for listening. Veiled Entropy was composed by Thomas Slack and performed by Quartet Atrevito. Rachmaninoff Symphony No. 2, Movement 3, was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. Epic Boss Battle was written by Raphael Crooks. Clarinet Duet 2 was composed by Roy Rientes and performed by Peter Smith and Mark Walton. Be sure to check out the links in our episode descriptions for the examples and resources we talked about today. You can subscribe to The Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Thank <laughs> you.